The sermon text for today is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 988. Listen as I read God's word. A time for everything. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil, this is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Here ends the reading. Right. Well, as we come to Psalm 1 this morning, I'd like to invite you, as we have been doing throughout this whole series, to stand with me. We've been trying to practice what the psalm instructs us to do, to meditate on the instruction of the Lord. And one of the ways that we're doing that is by uh, saying it over and over again and just sort of mentally rehearsing it and also rehearsing it out loud verbally. So uh, would you join me as we uh, say Psalm 1 together? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose wither does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Would you remain standing as we pray? God, we come before you this morning again and we ask that you would drive this psalm and its meaning deep into the core of our being. God, we're so thankful that you have revealed to us the path of flourishing, the path of prosperity and abundance. And Lord, we ask for hearts that trust you to follow that path, even if it may seem counterintuitive to us. Thank you, God, that you have designed us for seasons of fruitfulness. And we pray that you would 
Help us know how to navigate those seasons. Help us know how to navigate all of the life seasons we experience. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning as the one whom this psalm uh, points us towards. And would you help us to leave here changed people in the power of your spirit. And all God's people said, amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Life is filled with seasons. This is especially apparent to us as we look out into the natural world right now. Uh, It's only in the upper Midwest that you can have 80 degrees on Tuesday and snow on Thursday. Uh, So we we see the leaves changing, we see the weather changing, and the, the cool air is coming, and we see all the signs of the seasons that come and go as they do on a regular basis here in Minnesota. But also, there's not just natural seasons that we experience, we also experience seasons of life as well in a variety of different ways. We experience life seasons just sort of in general. Uh, You're born into this world as a helpless, dependent little creature. And then you enter a season where you are, as a younger person, you are maybe growing and you are uh, coming to become more independent and you're finding your identity maybe apart from your parents. And then you enter a season where you are an adult and you are fully responsible for every financial decision you make, for every other life decision you make, it's all on you because you're an adult. And so we experience these different seasons of life, and then as you come full circle, as you continue to grow older, uh, you become dependent upon others once again. And so if you live long enough, you will experience all of those different life seasons and many more in between. We also experience seasons uh, relationally as well. Uh, our friendships and our relationships change over time as we go in and out of those other life seasons. So you may have experienced a season of dating. You may have ex- experienced a season of marriage. You may, uh, if you're a younger person, uh, your relationships change uh, as you make certain transitions in life. For example, if you go from middle school to high school, you know, you've got your friends and you think we are going to be the closest-knit group of friends that was ever a close-knit group of friends, and then you go to high school, and it's bigger, and you're in different parts of the building, and you're in different classes, and all of a sudden, those relationships that you were so sure were going to last forever, they change. Has anyone else ever said to someone they were graduating high school with, I don't care where you go in life, we're always going to stay connected. And then they move to a different state, they go to a different college, And all of a sudden, the best of intentions lead to nothing more than our relationships changing. And all the things that we had such high hopes, those relationships we had high hopes of maintaining, life hits and our relational seasons just change. We experience not only this, we experience vocational seasons. You know, as young people, you have all these dreams in your mind about when I grow up, I'm going to be a... And, you know, it could be, I'm going to be a firefighter, I'm going to be an astronaut, I'm going to be a rocket scientist, I'm going to be a president, I'm going to be, um, you know, a professional sports player of some kind. And you've got these vocational dreams in your mind, which are so often not the way that it turns out, right? You take your first job, which is so far from what you dreamed of. Uh, If you're a stay-at-home mom, your work is inside the home, you have your first child, and you enter a season of vocation that is Uh, life-altering and life-changing. Maybe within the context of your vocation, uh, you you, you have transitions where you transition maybe from team to team or from department to department or you transition from company to company 
And all of a sudden, you, you, just, you go through these seasons. And so all of us experience life seasons like this. And so many more that we didn't even mention here this morning, but our lives are filled with seasons. We've been in Psalm 1, looking at this life of prosperity that God has for us. And this morning, what we're going to be doing is sort of zeroing in on verse number 3, where it says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. As we look at Psalm 1, uh, we see those first couple of verses tell us uh, the source of where true flourishing and blessing and abundance and prosperity come from. It comes from being a person who delights in the instruction of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. And then in the second part of this psalm that we entered into uh, last week, we begin to see something of what that life looks like when we actually experience it. And the picture that's given to us is the picture of a tree, of a person whose roots sink down deep next to a source of water, next to a source of life. And so the picture is that as we are planted near streams of water, we become like people uh, who are rooted in God, who's, who receives nourishment and life from the very life and the very love of God. And that's what we are like as people in relationship with him. We are like trees that draw our nourishment from him. And so we see this picture here this morning of yielding fruit in season. And we could spend an entire message talking about seasons and talking about fruit. <laughs> uh, what we're going to do this morning is just sort of zero in on this uh, idea of the seasons that we go through. And to do that, we're going to look uh, at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as you heard Deb read just a few moments ago. If all we had was Psalm 1, we would think of seasons in a very, very positive way, right? <laughs> That person bears fruit in season, and it's very uh, idealistic, and it's very positive sounding. But we don't just have Psalm 1. We have the book of Ecclesiastes, which is sort of like the emo literature of the Old Testament. And the book of Ecclesiastes sort of comes along at virtually every point in life and splashes cold water on us, and gives us a healthy dose of realism and gives us a healthy dose of reality, and sort of grounds us in, this is what our human experience is actually like. And so as we look at uh, these verses from Ecclesiastes, I want to just break these up into two different parts. There's uh, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 14. And so we're going to look at these in two parts. And the first part, here's what we see. In those first eight verses, we see the coming and going of all life's seasons. The coming and going of all life's seasons. Now, let's just make a few observations. As we look at all those different seasons that are listed there, one of the observations, one of the takeaways that we can make is that the seasons of life that we experience are inevitable. There is no way around it. You will experience seasons in life. There's uh, uh, those seasons that are listed. This is a representative list, okay? So this list is not saying you are going to experience something in your life that would necessarily fit into every single one of those categories, but it's telling us the kinds of things that we all experience in life. And we know this is true uh, because the Bible authors are very clever. And so you have 28 seasons that are listed here. And they're given to us in 14 pairs. There's a season for this and a season for that. And if you are uh, good at math, you know that 14 and 28 are all multiples of seven. 
And so this is uh, giving us this picture of the completeness of these are all the kinds of seasons that we experience. And the point is obvious, that we will experience all of these seasons. First one says, there is a time for everything and a season for everything, for every activity under the heavens. So we will all experience the kinds of seasons that we see in those first eight verses. So these seasons that we experience are inevitable. Not only this, the seasons we experience are also unpredictable. Now there may be some amount of control that we have over certain seasons in our life. You choose who to marry. You choose what vocation or what career path to choose maybe. But there's so much that comes to us in life that are seasons that come upon us that we did not choose, that are beyond our control. And the very way that this poem in verses one through eight is, uh, is, is given to us makes that point. There's all kinds of commentators and scholars and everybody notices that there is no pattern, there is no rhyme or reason to the seasons that are listed in here. There, there's sort of a randomness about it and that exactly is the point. <laughs> the point is that there, there is no, okay, I'm gonna experience this and then I'm gonna experience this and it's this nice, neat, sort of linear, logical experience of seasons, no, the seasons of life are unpredictable. We don't know when each of them are coming, which is actually somewhat a scary thought, isn't it? It's sort of a frightening thought that we don't have control over so many of the seasons that we experience, that they come and they go and we are completely out of control, unable to stop them, unable to change the seasons that come upon us. We experience the coming and the going of all of life's seasons, and what this means is that there may be some of us in this room who right now in this moment are on the verge of, who are at the, going to take a step into one of the most difficult seasons of your life. Maybe a season of grief or a season of uh, just unbearable loss or mourning or pain or suffering or sorrow. And none of us know when those seasons are coming. We don't know when the seasons that are good are gonna come, and we also don't know when the seasons of difficulty and trial are gonna come either. But the point is that these seasons we experience, they are inevitable. There's no way around it. We will experience seasons. The seasons we experience are unpredictable. We have no idea when they're going to come. And just one more thing I wanna observe before we move on is that what's written in verses one through eight uh, these are not distinctly Christian verses. And what I mean by that is that anybody could have written this. Okay, an atheist or an agnostic or someone who is a self-proclaimed non-religious person could have said, there's all kinds of seasons we experience in life. Okay, anyone could have written those verses. So the value of what we have here in Ecclesiastes is not that it tells us something we don't already know. We all know that there's seasons that are going to come and go in life. The value of Ecclesiastes is that these verses help us interpret all of those seasons that we experience. So we see in the first part the coming and the going of all life seasons. But then in the second part, in those next few verses, we see the sovereign goodness of God in all of life's seasons. And we have to have these together because if all we have is verses one through eight, we will be crushed by it we will be crushed by the, the randomness and the unpredictability and the lack of control that we have. And yet the writer of Ecclesiastes lifts our perspective off of just the circumstances. 
He lifts our perspective off of just the seasons we experience and helps us see them in a way from God's perspective. And so look at these verses with me. Verse nine, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of human. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people to do than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. So notice what these verses tell us about God and notice how they help us interpret and understand the seasons of life that we go through. The first thing we can see about God in these verses is that he has set eternity in the human heart. Now what in the world does that mean? Uh, I've, I've heard that most often in the context of saying, you know, humans just, that there's just a desire for more. We know that there has to be more than just this life. It's because God has set eternity in our hearts. And I don't think that's entirely untrue. I'm just not sure that's what this verse is actually saying. Uh, this verse, uh, most scholars say, is ridiculously hard to translate and understand. <laughs> so I'm going to take my best stab at it to try and uh, put together some of what this, uh, what this means. I think that in the context of this poem that gives us all these different seasons of life, saying that God has set eternity on the human heart, the sense of that, what that means, is that we live with a longing to understand the ways of God in the world. Notice what the text says. In verse 11, he has also set eternity in the, heart, in the human heart And then the next phrase that I think helps us interpret that, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. No one can understand, no one can fathom, no one can wrap their minds around what God has done, God's activities in the world. So I think this is what it means uh, to have eternity set in our hearts, is that we experience the coming and the going of all of life's seasons, some of which are wonderful, some of which are awful, and we would not wish them on our worst enemy, We experience all of those life seasons and there's a longing and there's a desire to understand how they all fit together. To understand why are we experiencing this? Why do I experience life this way and why do other people experience it so differently? There's a longing and a desire and an aching of the human heart to understand why is God doing things the way he's doing it? And that's the aching, that's the longing that God has put inside of us. So he's set eternity in the human heart, but we also see here that God has made everything beautiful in its time. This is the part that I, I, I feel like most of us struggle with, okay? When you see the, the list, the list of things, that, the seasons that we all experience, God has made everything beautiful in its time. I think we can look at the, the seasons that are listed in those first eight verses and we would come to the conclusion, wouldn't we, that some of them are good and some of them are bad. Because after all, that's kind of how they're given to us as opposites. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to be joyful and a time to be sad and to mourn. And so we would say, surely some of these are good and some of these are bad. Some of these are desirable and some of these are undesirable. Some of these are beautiful and some of these seasons are ugly and we 
would avoid them at any and all costs. And yet what the writer of Ecclesiastes does here is he doesn't let us make that conclusion. If all we had was verses one to eight, that's what we could naturally conclude. Some seasons are great, some seasons are awful. You should just hold out hope that you're gonna have good seasons. And yet the writer of Ecclesiastes does something totally different. He lifts our perspective off of those seasons and helps us to see that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now I think what that means is that there is a kind of beauty in every single season that we experience. That may sound counterintuitive. You may sort of have a knee-jerk sort of, uh, you want to argue with that. And yet I think that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. There is a kind of beauty in a season of dying. There's a kind of beauty in a season of mourning. There's a kind of beauty in a season of sorrow and suffering, and discouragement. There's a kind of beauty in those things, not because those things in and of themselves are beautiful. We don't say, oh, suffering is beautiful. Sorrow is beautiful. We don't say that. We can look at these seasons and see beauty in it because they are woven together by the hand of God. So there's beauty in every season because God is weaving them together for our good. So he's lifting our perspective and saying, guys, everything, you will experience all these kinds of seasons. You'll experience seasons that you would say are good and seasons you would say are bad. God has made every single one of them beautiful in its time. And so this shows us the perspective of there is an all-wise, all-good, all-sovereign all generous, all gracious, all loving God who's taking even the seasons of suffering, even the seasons of angst and worry and discouragement, the seasons of sorrow in your life, he can take even those and make them turn out for something good. And so it's showing us a picture of the sovereign goodness of God in the midst of all of those life's seasons. And what this passage shows us also is it shows us God's intention. It shows us the good plans and the good intentions of God. Look what it says in verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. God's desire is that people would see and experience all of the seasons of life, would feel the sort of spiritual angst of eternity being set in their hearts and it would lead them to relationship with him. It would lead them to understand who he is and to see his sovereign goodness over all the seasons we experience and would lead us to trust him. It would lead us to fear him. And friends, this is not a cowering fear that's being talked about. This is a reverent worship fear of seeing the sovereign goodness of God over all things and saying, I trust you in the midst of all of it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how this can be beautiful and yet I am trusting you that you are weaving this together into something beautiful that I could never even begin to imagine. And so it shows us the intentions. It shows us the heart of God that he desires people to know him. He desires people to fear him. These verses reveal not only his sovereign character, these verses reveal also his compassionate heart. His desire is not to crush us. 
his desire is that those things would lead us to trust him, to see his character, and that we would love him. And that is what gives us hope in the midst of all the seasons we experience. Without that perspective of seeing there is a God who can take anything and everything and make it turn out for my good, without that, all we have are the unpredictable, inevitable seasons that may bring us joy and they also may bring us despair. Apart from the sovereign goodness of God, all the seasons of life will crush us. But we have more than just those seasons of life given to us here. We have the perspective of God's sovereign goodness over all these seasons of life that we experience. Psalm 1, in verse 3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. In other words, the flourishing person's life bears fruit in season. Trees have a natural life cycle to them. They have seasons. Okay? We know this full well in Minnesota because we have both the extremes of the extreme sweltering humid heat and both the really dry, just awful negative 10 degree coldness. Okay? And so we get, to see the, we get to see the full spectrum of the life of a tree, which is there are certain seasons where it blooms and it produces fruit and there's life And then seasons where the leaves wither and change color and they're beautiful for a time and they fall on the the ground and they turn to dust and it looks like the tree is dead. And yet the tree is not dead in the midst of that season. It's a kind of dormancy. But that tree is still alive even in the midst of all those different seasons. And this is the image that's being given to us in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, saying you are like a tree that's planted by streams of water which will yield its fruit in season. Trees have seasons of fruitfulness and seasons of a kind of dormancy where they are not fruitful in the same way. Some of you may remember the words of Jesus where he's walking with his disciples and it says that he saw a fig tree but it didn't have any fruit on it. Why? because it wasn't the season for bearing figs, right? Even in the Middle East, where there, there isn't the extreme temperature ranges, the trees still go through seasons, where you, you got a fruit tree, it doesn't just bear fruit all the time. There's a season where it stops bearing fruit, or where the, the fruit bearing slows down significantly, and that's built into the life cycle of the tree. And what Psalm 1 is telling us is this is exactly what our life that is rooted in God looks like. We experience the seasons, and we experience seasons of fruitfulness. We experience seasons of a kind of dormancy. The same thing is true of our lives in God. Now, listen to the words of Jesus in the book of John. So Jesus uses a, a, a metaphor very similar to the metaphor of the tree from Psalm 1, but he doesn't talk about a tree and branches. He talks about a vine and branches. And so what he says is familiar to many of you. He says, I am the vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Then he goes on to say in verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you are grafted into me, if you are connected to me who is the vine, you will bear fruit. There will be a fruitfulness to your life as a result of being connected to the vine. And think about the similarities between the vine and the tree, where the vine is the source of life for the branch that's connected to it. Because the water, the nutrients, comes up through the roots into the vine itself and then out into the individual branches that make up uh, that vine. And so it's through the life of the vine that the branches actually receive their life. And in the same way with the tree in the book of Psalms, it's the, the water itself that's being sucked up through the roots. There's a source of life outside of the branches and there's a source of life outside of the tree itself. It draws its life from somewhere else and Jesus is saying, I am the source of your life. And in the same way that you are called to be grounded and planted by streams of water like a tree, you are also called to be connected to me who is the vine. And I am the source of your life. I am the source of your all, all spiritual and all uh, real nourishment for you. And so he calls us to be connected to the vine and says, if you are in me, you will bear fruit. But he also says something that's much less enjoyable. He says, yes, you will bear fruit. And if you bear fruit, or when you bear fruit, because if you're in the vine, you will bear fruit, right? When you bear fruit, what's going to happen? You'll be pruned. (laughs) Oh, isn't that everyone's favorite thing, to be pruned? You never prune a tree while it's in the middle of bearing fruit. You, you prune a tree in a season where it's dormant and you cut away some of the branches, you cut away some of the leaves and all the extra stuff so that the nutrients of the tree will be more concentrated and directed to someplace else. So instead of getting like a thousand of these tiny little apples, you get like a hundred really good apples when you prune away all that other stuff. And those seasons of fruitfulness are wonderful. And the seasons of pruning are not wonderful. And yet God has promised us that we will experience seasons of pruning. Where the branches are cut off, are cut away. Where in, in a way God wounds us. But what is the reason God does that? Why does he prune us? Talk to me. Why does God prune us? so that we will bear more fruit. <laughs> so the way that God bears fruit in us is by not just making us all, you know, constantly in a state of bearing fruit. He, he causes us to bear fruit and bear much fruit precisely through and using the method of those seasons of pruning. And those seasons are not fun. Those seasons are not enjoyable. And yet what it shows us, what we see in John 15 is that God desires his people to bear fruit. God loves his people enough that he will cut them. He loves his people enough that he will wound them. He loves his people enough that he will hurt them so that they will ultimately become what he is wanting them to be, which is more fruitful. So we see God's desire that we're fruitful. We see his love for us. And so we know that the pruning seasons we experience 
which may be temporary, they may be short, they may be lifelong, they may be decades-long seasons of pruning where things are being torn away and cut away. As we experience all of those life seasons, we know what those can't mean. We know that those seasons cannot mean God doesn't love me. Those seasons cannot mean God has left me. God has abandoned me. We know that's not true because God has told us his heart. His heart is that we would bear fruit and he loves us enough to prune us. And so it doesn't make those seasons of of difficulty, it doesn't all of a sudden make it so that like, wow, I'm sick again. Wow, I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful that I got that diagnosis. I'm so thankful I lost my job. No, we don't approach it like that. We say, I don't understand this, this is hard, and yet I know the heart of God is to prune me so that I will bear much fruit. He loves me, and so he's willing to do these things to me that feel difficult, but I can trust him because I know his heart for me. God's heart is that we would bear fruit, and so we can trust him even in the midst of those seasons where it's difficult. Now, I don't know what season you all are facing today. Some of you may be in seasons of just unbearable grief or loss, difficulty, suffering, sorrow, Maybe you question the existence or the presence of God. You, you feel distant from him. You're, you're spiritually in a, in a wasteland. And you can't figure out how all this fits together. You may be in a difficult season like that. And I, I don't know what all of you are facing, but here's what I do know. I do know that God loves you. I do know that God's heart is for your good. God's heart is that you would bear much fruit. And I know that God loves you enough to bring you through difficult things because in that process, he's pruning you. And you may not see or understand ever in this life how it all fits together. You may not ever have a moment where you look around and say, you know, boy, that was really hard, but now I see what God was doing in that. Now I can see that when I experienced that, oh, this is what God was up to. When we have those moments, it's glorious, isn't it? It's wonderful when we have those moments. And so often we don't have those moments. We don't have the answers. But what we do have is we have the heart of God. We know who he is. Ecclesiastes tells us that he is the all-sovereign, all-good, wise creator and sustainer and sovereign over all things, and that he makes everything beautiful in its time. In John 15, we have a picture of the heart of God, that he loves us so much that he will inflict pain upon us so that we would bear fruit, so that we would become more of what God designed us to be in the first place. And we know the heart of God most fully demonstrated to us because he sent us his son. He sent us his son, Jesus, who took on human flesh and identified with us in the brokenness of our world. And he experienced many of the same seasons that we experience, and he did so without sin. And then he suffered and he died at the end of his ministry. And Jesus, Jesus was cut off. Jesus was cast away like the branches that bear no fruit that the Father cuts off and throws into the fire. That's what happened to Jesus. He was cut off. He was cast out. So that we, who come to him by simple faith and trust in him, we could be grafted again once, once again into the family of God. That we could be grafted into the very life and the very love of God by being grafted into the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see the heart of God. In that, we see the heart of God in the cross, 
which is the clearest demonstration that God can take the most seemingly meaningless and painful things and somehow make them turn out for our good. What else is the cross except for that? The cross made no sense to anyone in the first century. Jesus' disciples didn't see, didn't understand it coming. The religious leaders sat there and they mocked him saying, oh, you who say you're going to save Israel, why don't you come down and save yourself? They didn't understand, right? Because Jesus suffering and dying on a cross, that doesn't look like fruitfulness. That doesn't look like the way that God would plan things. And yet, it wasn't just in spite of those circumstances that God brought about our deliverance. It was actually through those experiences themselves, through Jesus suffering and dying unjustly, that was the very means that God used to bring about our deliverance. And so we know that God has not abandoned us in those times of difficulty. We know that God can take the most seemingly meaningless circumstances that are so painful that make no sense to us. We know that he can take those and make them turn out for our good because he already has in Jesus. And so it doesn't change our circumstances necessarily. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden our bad circumstances become something that we enjoy. It means that we have perspective in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of those seasons that we don't understand, that seem difficult, that seem unbearable, in the midst of those circumstances, we know that God loves us. And he's demonstrated that he can take even something like this and make it turn out for our good. So we know that we can trust him. Amen? We get to come to the communion table today, as we do each week. And part of what we do is we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus which again is this demonstration of the, the, the lengths to which God will go to demonstrate his love for us. It demonstrates that God can take the most ugly circumstances and make them fruitful in ways that we can't even imagine. And it demonstrates that through faith, through receiving those elements, we are united together with Christ. We are grafted into the vine. We are like the tree that will bear fruit in season, even though we are pruned and sometimes pruned often. And so we get to come to the communion table today and celebrate and remember what God has done for us. And we can come here today, no matter what our circumstances are, and say, I trust you because I know what is true. You love us. You are for us. Enough that you will send your son, enough that you will prune us, and so we can trust you in the midst of everything. So as we come to the communion table today, let me invite you to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Our merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole hearts, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, forgive us for the seasons that we experience that are difficult and that lead us to question your goodness. Lord, forgive us for having hearts that can be so slow to 
believe your good promises and to see your sovereign hand in all things. Lord, we pray that you would make us increasingly a people that can find joy and can find satisfaction in the midst of whatever circumstances we're facing because we know that you love us, because we know that you're for us. Make us people like that, we pray, O oh God. In your mercy, Lord, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.